have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. You can go ahead and turn to Psalm 86. We're going to look at that passage in just a few minutes. Um, we are in a sermon series called God Is, and we have been digging into the main attributes, some of the main attributes of God. We certainly have not gotten into all of them, but we've gotten into uh, quite a few of them. And we have been looking at how God is love, that God is self-sufficient, God is generous, God's glorious, God is holy, uh, He is wisdom. And today we're looking at the concept that God is gracious or that He is the very embodiment of grace. I love that word grace. It's like the word peace. When you say it, it just evokes an emotion. It, it, it makes you have a calming feeling attached to it. Grace. I'm going to give you grace. We like that. When, our, when we buy a car or have a credit card and they have a grace period, um, we, we hear this term a lot and we like receiving grace. I remember one time the kids were uh, uh, arguing in the, in the uh, car and, uh, and it got a little violent between the children. And so I said, you're, you're going to get a punishment when we get home. And, of course, that's even worse, you know. I, and I said, I said, I don't know why I did this. But in this moment, I said, do you want justice or do you want grace? Well, that was kind of a no-brainer, wasn't it? Uh, grace, please. With a, slide of, with, a, with a side of cake. I'll take grace. You know, I... I Nobody's going to say, I want justice. Give me what I deserve, right? Nobody wants that for themselves. You want justice when it relates to somebody else. When someone has wronged you, you want them to get justice. But when you have wronged someone else, you want them to give you grace. Exactly. And so we sing about amazing grace and marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. We talk about grace. Um, we preach about it, and we're certainly thankful for grace when we are recipients of it. And this word grace is often defined as God's unmerited favor. And what that means is that God gives us something we do not deserve. He gives us something we don't deserve. We didn't earn his forgiveness. We could not merit his forgiveness. But we needed it. So God gives us grace. He extends forgiveness. He extends mercy and love and all the other positive attributes to us, not because we're holy, not because we're righteous, not because we're deserving. He does it specifically because we are not righteous. We are not holy and we are not deserving. When you give somebody grace, it means that you withhold the punishment that they were due. So, for instance, if a police officer catches you speeding, you know you were speeding, and they roll up on your window, you know, they walk up to you, and they're checking the back seat and shining their flashlight, and they walk up to you, you roll down your window, and they ask you, what question? Do you know why I stopped you? Now, you can, I mean, like, you know, if, you, if your second language is sarcasm, lots of things come to mind in that moment. Well, I don't, do you know? Because otherwise, why are we here? You should know. 
But no, if you knew you were speeding, what I do is, is uh, I take a page from old Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People book, and I tell the officer, I was speeding officer. Now, he's wearing a body cam most of the time now, and so I've just admitted on camera, I broke the law. But in that moment, most people don't, ad- I don't know, why did you stop me? Um, I think your radar gun is broken. I wasn't going that fast. Yes, you know, I, 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 I bumped an old lady. She flew over my hood, you know, when I was driving. But I wasn't going that fast. She was going real slow. You can come up with all sorts of things. I, what I do when I'm asked, and I haven't been asked in a long time. They haven't caught me. Um, but uh, I say, I was speeding. I apologize, officer. I was speeding. And so in a lot of times in those moments, and I say a lot of times, it sounds like I get stopped a lot. I really don't. But, but in many instances, a few of instances, I, when I admit guilt, I get grace. And so in a couple of those instances, um, the officer will say, all right, well, I'm going to write you a warning. And I'm incredibly grateful for the warning. I don't know what it does to my driving record. Hopefully nothing. I don't know what, I don't know what it does to my insurance, but I don't want a ticket. And so he gives grace. This police officer gives me grace, and I'm very thankful for that warning. I'm like, you know what, officer? I appreciate it. I'm going to pray for you. You have a great day, safe day. Uh, but did you know that there are people who get a warning and they're still angry about it? They're still angry that they got to get a ticket. I'm just going to give you a warning. And they're like, and, and they express anger. They reject the grace that is given to them. They're angry because they got pulled over, and, and when they get a warning, they're still angry about it. And they can reject the grace that is given. That is exactly what happens sometimes when God extends grace to them. They don't want to be confronted with their sins. They don't want to have their comfortable lives interrupted. They don't want grace because they don't think they need grace. Some people think they're perfectly fine on their own. Now, we often think of grace as strictly a New Testament idea because it is overwhelmingly New Testament. However, it is mentioned in the Old Testament. And David actually wrote a psalm, as I said, if you want to turn to Psalm 86, we'll get there in just a second. David wrote a psalm asking God for his grace. Now, this is significant because quite a, quite a bit in David's Psalms, he talks about how he meditated on God's law, not grace, on God's law. How it was always in his mouth, how he kept it, how he loved it. He always put God's laws before him so that he would uh, not stumble. And yet in this Psalm, God, uh, David asks for God's Not law, but grace. Why? Maybe because he knew what Isaiah would say several generations later. How our righteous deeds, all of our righteousness, everything righteous and good and holy that we could possibly do is really nothing but filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. As an example, real quickly, 
If I have a glass of water right here, and it's clear, pure water, you would probably, if I asked you, you would take a drink of it because it's clean water. Now, if I put just a few drops of dirt in that water and, and stirred it around, would you drink it then? No. Why? Because it's dirty water. Even though the ratio of clean to dirt is overwhelmingly clean, it's still dirty as soon as something makes it dirty, filthy. And so all of our righteousness, we can think about all the righteous things we do, all the times we give and pray and go and serve and, and do good things for God. But the reality is because we have evil and wicked things in our life that we do, all of our righteousness compared to a perfect and holy and unblemished God is filthy rags. And so Psalm 86, 1 through 7, David writes this. He says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for, you, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. For in the day of trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. Now, David is a law-abiding Israelite, a law-abiding follower of God. He was called by God a man after God's own heart. I'd say that's pretty high praise coming from the Almighty. And that's something that we should all strive for. And yet, here he is asking for God's grace. He's not asking God to accept his sacrifices. He's not asking God to look at his adherence and obedience to the law. He's begging God to be gracious to him, to listen to his plea for grace. He's asking God to not give him what he does deserve and to instead give him what he doesn't deserve. That's grace. Now, Paul wrote extensively about grace, mentioning it at least once in every single of his New Testament letters. It was a prevailing theme in Paul's writings. And so when we try to understand grace from the New Testament perspective, uh, probably the second chapter of Ephesians stands out as Paul's treatise on grace. But before Paul could explain what grace is, he had to explain why we were in a desperate position to need it. And here's why. If you walk up to a stranger and you tell them you have a cure for a disease, they might pat you on the back and say, well, good for you, and then walk away. But if you're a doctor and you diagnose someone with a disease, they suddenly get really serious. They want to know what the treatment is for this disease that they have. If there's a cure, then they're relieved and they will gladly accept it. They will sometimes be, they will put themselves in, in uh, really challenging situations with chemo and radiation therapy if they feel like it will help them overcome this disease. But they have to be convinced that 
They have the disease, right? Nobody says, you know what? It's Friday. I don't have to go to work. I'm flexing off today. Let's go get some chemo just for fun. Nobody says that because that's not fun. But if they have a disease that only chemo or radiation or this medication will fix, then they will gladly endure what they have to endure. Well, many times that's how we approach unsaved people. We tell them we have a cure for a disease they don't think they have. We talk to them about accepting Christ who will save them from their sins. Use the example before of Deion Sanders. He said, people would tell me often I need to get saved. That, that Christ would make my life so much better. He said, I had all the money I needed. I had all the women I needed. I had all the pleasures I wanted. All the success, everything I could possibly want. What would Jesus bring to my table? What would he add to my life to make it any better? And so that is how often we approach trying to talk to an unsaved person. He'll make your life better. Which is not true, by the way. Not necessarily. He'll make your eternity a lot better. But we do go through a lot of challenges as we walk the Christian life. We have to deny ourselves and, and uh, stop living in the flesh, stop giving over, uh, giving into things that we want. And so we try to tell people that we've got a cure for a disease that we haven't convinced them that they have. But people, you know, if you were to ask somebody, do you think, if you, just, just, for fun, if you're going to a restaurant today, just have a short conversation with your waiter or waitress. Just ask them, do you feel like you're a good person? And they're going to say, yes. Because what do you do when you get asked, are you a good person? You immediately compare yourself with the worst human being you've ever heard of. I mean, I'm not Hitler, so yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not this, I'm not this dirtbag you know, over here, you compare yourself with the worst person. So if you ask somebody, are you a good person? They're going to say yes. So if they feel like they're a good person, they don't feel like they need to be saved from their sins. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul diagnoses each of us so that we understand what God did and why God did it. So Paul first illustrated, if you have your bulletin insert, you can fill in the blank. He first illustrated why we need grace. Why we need grace. If my kids are in the car and they haven't done anything wrong and I just randomly say, do you want justice or grace? They won't know the context. They won't know why they need grace. If they break the law and are caught, then yes, they definitely want it because they need it. Paul wrote chapter 2 of Ephesians uh, to the church in Ephesus to underscore and help them understand this whole principle of grace. He wrote to them in verse 1 that they were dead. You are dead in your sins and your trespasses. And the reality is that we are physically alive, but we, are, we were spiritually dead. And, you know, we can blame Adam and Eve um, for passing down their lawlessness to us. But the reality is that only extends to the first sins we've committed as we were children. Once we knew better, then all those sins are on us because we knew what God required and we broke the law. Um, 
<clears throat> we cannot continue to blame them every time we sin. You know, if, if one of my teenage kids said, well, Adam made me do it, or the devil made me do it. No, no, he didn't make you do it. He tempted you, and you did it. In verses 2 and 3, Paul wrote that we are, we were influenced by the devil, and we were controlled by our own lusts. We wanted something that was not godly and not appropriate for us to want. Because of that, we were under God's wrath. We were not right with God. We could never be right with God. We were under a curse, and every day we were just making it worse. Later in the chapter, Paul wrote that we were pagans without God. In verse 12, he reminded them that they were separated from Christ. They had no hope in this world for salvation. It's a bleak picture that Paul is painting here, but it was a necessary one. No one voluntarily goes through all of the medical treatments associated to cure cancer if they're not fully convinced that they've got cancer. Nobody willingly goes through dialysis if they don't 100% know their kidneys are failing. Thus, nobody will take on spiritual treatment if they haven't been fully convinced they have a spiritual disease. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Paul then turns his attention to number 2, what God did. Paul wrote, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what God did. What did he do? Well, he loved us. Even when we were breaking his law day after day. Even when we were commanded to do one thing we, and we did the opposite. Anyway, he still loved us. Even when we accepted Christ and had a deeper understanding of what God required of us and why we should be obedient, yet still broke his rules, he loved us. You get the picture of a very loving and forgiving parent here. When your child disobeys you, yes, it is frustrating. It upsets you. This morning, Gideon woke up, and Gideon, for those of you that don't know, my four-year-old, he's the runner. If you do not have a firm grasp on him and the door is open, he's gone. And there's nothing on earth as fast as a toddler with something sharp in his hands. <clears throat> and more dangerous, I would say. Uh, nothing more sh fast or, sh or dangerous than a toddler with something, a sharp object. Well, this morning, I'm trying to let Angela rest for a little bit. I wake up. The, the Sam has announced, Mom, Dad, the sun's up. Because, you know, you don't even need an alarm clock when you've got a wonderful, amazing child like this. We were not up, but apparently the sun was up. And so he was announcing it to the entire household. So I go in and, and open the gate. We have a baby gate because you can't let them loose unless you're prepared for it. And so I open the gate, not realizing that Gideon was awake. Well, the door to my bedroom is partially open, and Gideon looks at me, 
He's, he's one step into my bedroom, which he's not allowed to be in because this is where we hide all the snacks in our bedroom. We can't leave them out in the open. It's chaos. So we hide all the good things, all the Easter candy and all the, all the fun stuff in our bedroom uh, that we do not want them to see or know about, all the zebra cakes and, and all that stuff. So he's one foot into our bedroom, and I say, Gideon, come here. Don't go in the bedroom. And he says, I want to wake up Mama. And I said, I don't want you to wake up Mama. And then he gets this big evil smile on his face, and he turns And he starts to go like this, and I lunge for him and grab him and pull him out of my room. And he cries because he wants to go wake up Mama, but Mama, I don't want Mama to wake up just yet. I want her to rest. And so even I told him no. I said, no, no, no. And I'm trying to be quiet, but can you you really yell quietly? No, come here. And he, now I love him, but he disobeyed me and he frustrated me. That happened this morning. But I didn't stop loving him because he completely ignored what I said. I didn't stop loving him. As they grow up, their obedience may be a little bit more and more sporadic. They can get a little sassy as they age. And yet you still love them. You don't always understand them. You don't always agree with the decisions that they make. But you love them. God loved us and gave us life. That's what Paul tells us. He gave us life. Now, what's really cool is in the book of Genesis, it says when God breathed life into Adam, he formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed life. It's the only creature, only thing in Genesis that God actually breathed into, his own life. But that word life there in, the, in Genesis is actually plural. God is breathing into Adam, not just physical life, because the lions and the bears and the tigers and all that stuff, they're, they're alive and God didn't breathe into them. He breathed into Adam the breath of lives, plural. This is not just physical life, but it is life to the spirit and life to the soul. And so when Adam sinned, he didn't die physically right away, but he died spiritually right away. In the day you eat of it, you will die. One of your lives will die. And he died spiritually. And so God's grace enables us to come alive together with Christ. We are no longer dead in our sins and trespasses. We have been made uh, with a new life. We've been made a new creation. Our spiritual life is restored. And after he lifted us up, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. I can't think of a position that I am more unworthy to be in than that. And yet God extends his grace precisely because I don't deserve it. Have you ever generously given something and their response was awe and appreciation and how unworthy they were to receive it? Well, you might feel that way about your spouse picking you for a mate. You may go, out of everybody in this world, you picked me. Wow, that's amazing. When we see someone through the eyes of love and grace, we receive things we're not worthy of. 
and it makes us appreciate them even more. And next, number three, we come to a question that plagues many people. And it unfortunately prevents some people from moving forward with a relationship in, uh, with Christ. In Ephesians 2.7, Paul answers the question, why God did it? Why God did it? Paul wrote, so that in the coming ages he might show immeasurable riches of his ki- grace. I'm sorry, let me start that over. So that in the coming ages he might show immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God poured out his grace upon us because he wanted to demonstrate his kindness to us. We become trophies of God's grace, as some translations put it. When I was in high school, I walked by this trophy case right outside the auditorium. Right outside the auditorium, there were these multiple trophy cases and all the sports wins and debate team and football and soccer and all that stuff. All the trophies that, that uh, teams from my high school had won were in those trophy cases. And I would walk by. If I had, if I had a, a few extra seconds, I would stop by and look at the trophies and you know, really marvel at the really tall, uh, big ones. The bigger the trophy was, the more impressive it was. And and I would read what, what sport was it in and, and when did they win it. And, and the, each trophy did not represent a single win. It represented months, if not years, of sacrifice. It represented the blood, the sweat, the tears of all the people that were involved in it. It, it, it represented a specific strategy to get that trophy as its final goal. And when the trophy was won, it was put on display for everybody to see. Paul is saying we are these trophies of God's grace. And because we're trophies of grace, we aren't the ones that put in the sacrifice, though. Jesus was. He is the one that put in the sacrifice so that we could be a trophy back to God, a valuable symbol of his grace and love. That is why God did it. And then Paul shifted his attention to number four, how God did it. How God did it. How did he do all this? How did he accomplish this? Well, he wrote, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and if you underline or highlight or whatever, this is a really, really good verse for you to memorize. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God has saved us through grace or his special favor. He extended his hand towards us, having already paid the price for our salvation. He didn't ask us to pay the price. He had already paid the price. All we had to do was accept this free gift. We had to have faith. We had to actively believe. And and let me clarify, sometimes we think of faith as as a noun. That faith is something that you possess. You either have faith or you don't have faith. But the reality is that in Scripture, faith is more like a verb 
It is actively believing. It's not really something that you possess. It's something that you do. Uh, we understand the, the concept has really come out uh, in the past few years, love as a verb. I think DC Talk uh, opened that up for all of us, love as a verb. Uh, it's not something that you possess. I have loving feelings for you. No, love is demonstrated through action. Amen? All the ladies who have anniversaries, love is demonstrated through action. All right? A ring, a gift, some flowers, etc. cetera. Uh, you demonstrate your love for someone through an action, serving them or giving them a gift or, or writing them a poem or recording a song. You demonstrate your love through action. Well, the same thing is true for faith. We demonstrate we have faith by doing faith, by actively believing. And so we had to have faith. We had to actively believe that God would keep his word, that we would be saved from our sins and our trespasses. And so Paul reminded the Ephesians, and it's a good reminder to us, that God is not giving us what we deserve. That would be justice. He is mercifully giving us what we don't deserve. That's grace. And this is accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.13 tells us, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. God came near to us when we were sinners and God-haters. God came near, being born in a frail human body. God came near, and he walked among humanity. He taught, and he healed, and he ministered. God came near, showing that he was perfect, demonstrating his perfection, and being perfectly capable to deal with the problem of sin. God came near, and he willingly walked to the cross to shed his blood for sins, not his own, but for our sins. We were once far off. We have been brought near to this God through this amazing grace because God is the very embodiment of grace. Paul concluded Ephesians chapter 2 with number 5 explaining what we are now. Now that we've received grace, now that we understand it, uh, why we needed it, what God did, how God did it, why God did it, now we are looking at what we are now. What has grace accomplished in our lives? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul wrote that we are expected to do good works. We are workers for his kingdom. We're not supposed to sit around and polish our trophies. We're supposed to get active and do good works. Now, notice what Paul wrote there in, in Ephesians 2.10. He said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is a weirdly phrased verse. And because of the placement of the commas, we have these four different sections of the verse. And when you read it A, B, C, D, it, it doesn't really make as much sense. 
But in my interpretation, I, I think that Paul was trying to connect two thoughts. And so it was, in poetic terms, it would be A-B-A-B. So the first and the third lines connect, and the second and the fourth lines connect. So what he's saying is we are God's workmanship that he prepared beforehand. We didn't do the good works beforehand. We were prepared for God beforehand. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, okay? Before the foundation of the world was even laid, Christ already had his mission to go to the cross. So we are God's workmanship that he has prepared beforehand. Now, that makes sense because God has saved us. He's got a destiny for us if we're prepared and willing to follow him in obedience. And this workmanship was created in Christ for good works that we would walk in in them. We would walk in the good works. We're not saved by the good works. I mean, it there's anything we could hammer home today, it is that you are not saved by your works. Paul makes that point explicit. We're not saved by anything that we do because there is no merit to salvation. It is God's grace, a free gift. And so we walk in these good works because we have been saved by grace. As we demonstrate, as we demonstrate our faith, we do good things. If, if you come across somebody who is consistently sinning, do you assume they're a Christian having a bad day? If they're being selfish, if they're being violent, if they're being hateful, do you just assume they're really a good person? They're just having a bad day. They may be coming at me with a knife. They may be shooting at me. They may be chasing me and spitting at me, but they're, they're really a good person. If you really get down and get to know them, they're really good. They're just having a rough day. Uh, no. You see their works, and since Jesus told us that a tree is known by the fruit that it produces, and you see wicked, evil fruit, you know what kind of a tree they are. They're a wicked, evil tree. And so if they're not a good tree having a bad day, they're producing rotten, wicked, and evil fruit. And that makes them a wicked, rotten, and evil tree. Good trees, good trees are known for producing good fruit. And we should daily demonstrate that we have received God's grace through our good works so that God can be glorified. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.16 that grace has reconciled us to God. I've watched videos of these people, and, and uh, sometimes for whatever reason, there was, a, there was a rift. There was disagreement, and it got really heated. They wouldn't even be in the room with each other. And they were previously enemies, but they decided somebody intervened or one of them decided to do it. And they decided to forgive the past and be reconciled. And it's such a beautiful moment of grace between. They laid down their weapons, whether those weapons were literal or figurative. They laid down their arguments. They didn't argue the point, you know, I was right. No, they didn't do that. They just decided I'd rather be at peace. And what a lot of them will say in that moment is, 
ask the other person the question, why didn't we do this sooner? Why didn't we reconcile sooner? We've wasted so much time. Families get into rifts and split apart. They're no son of mine. They're no daughter of mine. And they begin to split apart and years go by, decades go by, and eventually there is a moment, a tragedy, a crisis happens, and the family comes back together, and the family almost always says in that moment of reconciliation, why didn't we do this sooner? We lost so many years, so many Christmases, Thanksgivings, birthday parties. We could have fellowshiped together. Why didn't we do this sooner? In the news, there has been much talk about racial division. Well, this was an issue back in Paul's day. This is not new to us. And this is something that has gone on for thousands of years. And Paul is writing to the Ephesian church to, and, and addresses this in, in the light of reconciliation. Because this church had Jews and Gentiles in the church. Jews thought Gentiles were godless pagans uh, that were lucky to be saved uh, through Christ. Gentiles thought that the Jews were arrogant and exclusive. Uh, for some in the early church, if the people, if somebody wasn't a Jew, they didn't belong in the church. I'm not talking about it in Judaism, in the synagogues. I'm talking about it in the Christian church. If they weren't a Jew, they didn't belong. And for some people, this is a group called Judaizers. They, they were forcing people to convert to Judaism to accept Jesus Christ. And so Paul addressed racial division here in this chapter. He said, you know, essentially we may have different skin tones, but we have the same father. And the father loves me no more and no less than he loves you. I don't love Mackenzie and Micah any more or any less than I love Samuel and Gideon. Just because maybe one of them looks more like me, acts more like me, that, if they act more like me, then that would actually be cause for more spankings, probably. Got to spank that bad personality out of you. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't favor one. I don't favor Mackenzie because she's the girl. She's the only girl I have. I don't favor her over my other children. I don't love her more. I, don't, I hope don't do more for one child than I do for any of my other kids. I love them all the same because they all belong to me. They're my children, and they'll always be my children. The day they were born, they were given to me by the doctor, and I have cared for them ever since. Grace brought us near to God. Grace brought us near to the Father and reconciled us to him. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.19, he said, Once we were recipients of God's grace, and in Christ Jesus, we're no longer strangers. We're no longer outsiders. Have you ever been somewhere you didn't feel like you belonged? You feel like an outsider. You feel like a stranger. You feel like you're uncomfortable. I don't, I don't want to be here. I don't. You know, I don't, I don't know what's going on. It, it, you know, I, I don't want to give any examples, but, but just, you know, if you've ever felt that, you know it. It's very uncomfortable. You feel like an outsider. 
But the truth is, Paul is telling the church in Ephesus, is what he's telling us, we are God's people. We stand with the other saints and members of God's household, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, We stand shoulder to shoulder with the likes of Abraham and Moses and David, Isaiah, Peter, Paul. They were all human. Please, please understand this. It is not Christ, Peter, Paul, Andrew, Bartholomew, all these guys, and then us. It isn't that. Sometimes we look at and we read the, the scriptures and we read the things that they wrote and we, we treat them like super Christians. They were just as flawed as we are. They were only saved by grace. They were not born perfect like Jesus was. Jesus is the only perfect person. So we stand shoulder to shoulder with these saints, these people who did great things for God because God wants to do great things in us and through us. They forsook the draw of the world and they accepted God's call to something greater. And through his grace, we accept the same call. We are chosen to be God's people. It feels really good to be chosen. It feels really good to be chosen. I wasn't the smallest kid in elementary school, but I was close. And I love playing kickball. I grew up playing soccer, and so I love playing kickball because, man, I could just rocket that thing. But because I didn't look like much, I wasn't ever picked anywhere in the top 90th percent, okay? So here's basically how this would go. We would all line up against the chain link backstop because, you know, you're going to play on the baseball diamond. And we'd all line up, and, and the two tallest, most popular, most athletic kids would get to be team captains. Now, before you could dispute, why are you the team captain? You would immediately be picked last. You don't ask those questions. So they'd pick the tallest, and they'd pick the most athletic kids first. And then they'd pick all their friends. And then they'd pick the kid with the eye patch. And they'd pick the kid who had crutches because of a broken leg for kickball. And then they would pick me. I mean, they took the kid with no depth perception before they picked me. But it felt great to finally be chosen. Now, of course, you know, you just have to get over the fact they go, all right, Frazier, come on, you're on, just get towards the back. But in God's kingdom, he's not choosing us because of our athleticism, because of our money, because of our importance, because of our connections. He specifically chooses us and gives grace to us despite all of those things. We are no longer outsiders. We are saved, reconciled to God by grace because God is not only gracious, he is the very embodiment of grace. So Paul's final words on this describe us as being part of God's household. The prophets and the apostles are part of this foundation, and Christ is the cornerstone of that household. Now, the cornerstone, for those of you that don't know, this is the section of the building that is laid first. And all the other stones placed on this building are placed in reference to where the cornerstone sits. The cornerstone marks the location of where the entire building will be facing. It bears 
the most weight because every other stone is built upon it and, and extends from it. Christ is that cornerstone for God's household. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.22, he said, In him, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So as Christ as the cornerstone, we're being built together into a dwelling place for God through his grace. We are God's dwelling place. He dwells with us. He dwells in us. With Christ as the cornerstone, we are part of God's holy habitation. Through God's grace, we're being, we're, we are built together as a dwelling place for God. Not too far away, they're building an incredibly large distribution center for Amazon so you can get your packages even faster here in Fort Bend County. They've been building it for months and months. I mean, it, it could have been going on for over a year now. I don't know. Um, that building has a lot of different parts. Steel, concrete, PVC, all sorts of stuff. Each part has a specific use and a specific function. PVC is not used for what only steel can be used for. You wouldn't use plastic for something that only concrete can do. Each piece has a part to play. And when all the pieces are fitly joined together, the structure will be announced complete and it can then be filled up with people and things as part of Amazon's new dwelling place. Worship team, come up. We are part of God's dwelling place. Because sometimes in churches, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll hear a pastor or somebody trying to, you know, come on, come on, let's fill this place up with God's presence. Well, if we're here, God's presence is here. And we, we tend to think, if you'll, if you'll allow me this analogy, we tend to sometimes look at our Christian walk or, or coming to church as a truck stop more than a dwelling place. We're just passing through. You know, we come through, we, we sit for a minute, we fill up our tank. If it's communion Sunday, we grab a snack and we hit the road. So this is just a place we're just kind of funneling through on our way to somewhere else. You don't dwell at a truck stop. If you dwell at a truck stop, police are going to ask questions. Why are you hanging around here so much? What are you doing? What's in your pockets? They're going to ask questions. You don't dwell at a truck stop unless you work there. You pause there. You pause. Paul didn't say that we are a pausing place for the Spirit, that, that God's so busy so he can only give us a couple minutes because, you know, he's got to visit other churches and other believers. No, he didn't call us a pausing place. We're not a pausing place, but we are a dwelling place for God, a place where his Spirit dwells, inhabits, takes up residence. Now, if you struggle with addiction, if you struggle with temptation, remember this. 
Because God's presence dwells in you. And as you engage in unholy behavior, you are taking God's presence with you into that unholy place. And this is why it grieves God's heart. Christians who know better, who know what they should and should not do, still engage in sinful behavior. So it's not like God is only with you when you're here. He's with you. He indwells you. He empowers you. And he wants to use you in powerful ways. Because you are God's dwelling place. Every time we gather, we don't have to convince God, hey, show up, look at us. We've got drums. You know? We don't have to convince God to visit. God, it's 1030. Where are you? He's already here. Every time we go to the store, every time we go to our home, go to our job, go to a truck stop, He's there because He inhabits and He dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says, or do you not know? Don't you know? Aren't you aware your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So what do you do? Glorify God in your body. That is the best and most responsible. most appropriate response for God's overwhelming grace. Recognize that God dwells in you and glorify Him through your body. In everything you do, everywhere you go, glorify Him. In every conversation you have, in everything you do as a hobby, in your spending, in your time, in your workplace, glorify God in your body. This demonstrates God's amazing grace to those around you. Would you stand with me this morning? The worship team is going to lead us in a song to conclude our service today. But we're going to do something we haven't done in a long time. Um, Over a year, at least. As they sing, I'm going to come down into the altar area. And I, as I said earlier, I'm fully vaccinated and I will wear a mask. But if you have a need in your life, I want the opportunity to pray with you. Uh, You may need an increase of God's grace in your life. You may need uh, victory over a temptation or addiction. You may need a financial miracle uh, or a physical miracle. You may be burdened because of an unsaved loved one, whatever it is, while they sing. If you would like special prayer, I would encourage you to come forward and let's join our faith together this morning. Beautiful way to end that song, that line, grace that is greater than all our sins. God's grace is so amazing. It's so wonderful. And we should always be incredibly appreciative for it. Do we want God's justice or do we want God's grace? And I think it's obvious which one we choose, just like my kids in the back seat. I'd like grace, please. Grace that is greater than our sins. It is such a wonderful thought that when we come to God, that the mountain of sin we amassed is not greater than God's provision of grace. That that it, it His grace doesn't come down the more I sin. It's always greater than my sins. 
It's always washing over my sins because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, appreciate that grace. Don't abuse God's grace. Don't continue to walk in the ways of the world and just say, well, God's grace is greater. That's a dangerous way to live, a dangerous way to walk. Let God's grace change you from what you were to what you need to be, what God calls us to be, to glorify him through our good works, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for you. We're grateful, God, for your amazing grace. Help us not just be recipients and trophies of God's grace, but help us go after others. Help us be uh, put in positions where we can share your grace with others to bring them into the family. Put a burden on our heart for someone that needs salvation, Lord. Put a burden on our heart for somebody that is, that is in a situation. They're desperate for God's grace. And, and allow us, to God, to share that burden that, that we pray for them, we fast for them, we believe that you're doing, uh, you're drawing them to your, your side and you're going to save them. And so, Lord, make us trophies of God's grace and help us remember that so that we can share all that you have done with others and encourage them to accept Christ for their own walk, for their own life. Lord, wherever we go, Help us be committed to doing good works, even when we don't get appreciated for doing it, even when we get spit at and rejected, uh, even when we are uh, treated poorly and and even chased down. Lord, help us be uh, gracious and committed to doing good works. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.